Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 9. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were sitting with him and his disciples. When the disciples, Pharisees, saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard this, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners. The Gospel of the Lord. Uh, as was the case last week, um, I'm going to preach a sermon here today that it, uh, will be a version of a sermon I prepared uh, to preach in Wittenberg. Um, in fact, I'll plan to preach this next weekend. Wittenberg English Ministries, a lot of the people who worship um, will be tourists. People come to Wittenberg not because it's a shopping mecca. I mean, you can buy some nice Luther socks that say, here I stand, um, <laughs> which I've done. And they're pretty sporty. Uh, but people that come to Wittenberg primarily are, are Christian tourists, and, and as such really as pilgrims. And one of the things that Wittenberg English Ministry allows them to do is to worship in, in the, the places where Luther preached. So they do ask that the, uh, they do appreciate when the sermons have kind of a Lutheran slant, which apparently this one does, as David Larabazirath told me this morning after first service, that's the most Lutheran sermon he's ever heard. I don't know what that exactly meant, but it was it theologically passed muster. Also, there are Germans who come, maybe for spiritual reasons, sometimes just to practice English. Um, Wittenberg was in uh, East Germany, so, you know, deeply secular for years and years. And so there's also part of the ministry that, um, you know, even if they're coming for other reasons, we, we feed them some gospel. And, you know, that does what it has been doing since the beginning. So, yeah, here is today's version of a Lutheran-based sermon. It's kind of a wide swath, by the way, when they say, preach whatever you want, we'd like Luther, we're 10. I had to start with 900 sermon ideas and then kind of cut to basics. Sometimes when people talk about God, they do so in ways that sound really cozy, snuggly even, with the God they seemingly imagine to be something of a cross between a, 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 a kindly grandpa whom you snuggle up beside as he reads your favorite bedtime story or a snuggly teddy bear whom you snuggle with as you go to sleep and she helps you not to be afraid. The God the Bible actually describes, on the other hand, actually isn't a kindly grandpa or a snuggly teddy bear. The God the Bible actually describes is God who as such is so immeasurably greater than us puny us's that the holiness of God's holiness and the righteousness of God's righteousness and the godness of God's godness and the greatness of God's greatness, if the likes of us puny and sinful us's draw too close to God or if God draws too close to us, 
God's holy righteousness is so holy more than us that unleashed and unfiltered it is dangerous to us. After all, you know that if you look at the sun during a lunar or during a solar eclipse, it can blind you. Well, in the Bible's way of thinking, that is nothing like looking and standing unprotected in the presence of the creator of countless suns. The biblical examples of that abound, including that magnificent first text that Dan read earlier from the prophet Isaiah, where he recounts an experience he had in his life, and maybe it was a vision of some kind, maybe it was something more than that, maybe it was some kind of more literal something in some way, it's hard to say, but either way, what he literally writes is this, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and seraphs, these are kind of strange heavenly creatures apparently. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they flew. Now notice that these heavenly creatures called seraphs or seraphim, said Isaiah, had six wings, but only two of the six were for flying. For with the other four, they covered themselves to protect themselves from the fearful and awesome and righteous and holy godness of God. And singing a hymn, an antiphonal hymn of praise, which the book of Revelation says will actually be the words of heaven's unending hymn of praise. The seraphim sang back and forth to each other, but we sing every worship joining that hymn of praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. And says Isaiah, the pivots on the thresholds shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah said, I said, woe is me. I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and yet my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. The man's waiting for his retinas to fry. Certain that the awesome awesomeness of God's holiness is about to be the death of him. Which didn't, by the mercy of God, prove to be the case for the prophet Isaiah. But nevertheless, the God Isaiah in this scene describes is expressly neither a kindly grandpa or a cuddly teddy bear. For the God Isaiah describes in this scene is God. The entirely too close presence and glory of whom to Isaiah isn't snugly comforting, but dangerously terrifying, because he says, I'm a sinner. And the brightest, brightest, brightest brightness of God is the all-consuming brightness of God's righteousness, the all-consuming brightness of God's not sin. I'm doing a lot of reading, getting ready for the trip. I've been, one, of, one of the books I read was a biography of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who many of you are aware of, the German Lutheran pastor and theologian who actively opposed Hitler and the Nazis and was executed by them as a result. The author of that book, Eric Metaxas, in one chapter tells of a Nazi um, by the name of Reinhard Heydrich who designed 
and then delivered to Heinrich Himmler and Adolf Hitler the concept and the plans for death camps to be constructed and used for what the Nazis would somewhat encryptedly refer to as the final solution to the Jewish problem, their final solution being, of course, to kill every Jew within their reach. They came way too diabolically close to actually accomplishing that. 90% of the Jews in Poland, for example, were killed by Hitler. Heydrich, it turns out, was himself killed, his motorcade ambushed, ambushed by a British-trained team of Czech and Slovak resistance fighters. He was severely wounded in the attack and died a week later of sepsis. Stepping away from the role of just a biographer or historian, uh, Eric Metaxas wrote one sentence uh, in, uh, in a different role, kind of a theological commentator role at the moment of mentioning Heydrich's death. He said that on that day, Reinhard Heydrich, the architect of the final solution, quote, fell into the hands of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The clear implication, of course, being that Reinhard Heydrich in Metaxas' observation, a sinner in the unveiled and unfiltered presence of the smoke coming from around the throne righteousness of God was toast. Now I tell you all of that in order to tell you this. To understand Martin Luther, one must understand that growing up in the church of his time and later as a monk in the church of his time and even still later he was a priest and parish pastor uh, and university professor in the church at that time, Luther absolutely understood. He'd been taught this. He understood that God isn't a kindly grandpa or a snuggly teddy bear. He also totally believed that unrighteous sinners, when it came time to meet God in God's righteousness, would be doomed by God's righteousness to the all-consuming smoke and fire of God's hell prepared for them. And try as he might to be as good and righteous as he could, Luther knew that he was still a sinner. And since he, like Isaiah did believe that sinners in the presence of the sinless righteousness of God were doomed. It brought him to a place of deep, deep spiritual despair. He called it Anfektum in German. And try as he might to do everything the church told him to do to be as good and righteous as he could. He just knew that measured by the perfect righteousness of God, he could never be good and righteous enough for God. He would walk around in the cold, unprotected in the winter, to punish himself for his sins. He would flagellate himself. He would go without sleep instead to do deeds of service. He would confess his sins for hours on end so much so that his confessor said he was boring him. He'd come back when he got something interesting. But Luther said he was just, Luther was intensely aware of his not perfectness. His superior and confessor, by the way, sometimes we, we kind of paint all Roman Catholics of the time in one, in one bunch. Pope Leo was a, was a corrupt, um, uh, yeah, as corrupt as the church has ever been. Luther had a marvelous mentor uh, in the church, a man by the name of 
Johann von Staupitz, he was his superior, both the monastery and at the university, trying to comfort him. He said to him one time, Martin, you're being too hard on yourself. Just love God. And Luther said, love God. I hate God. Which, of course, he... Uh, probably realized was another self-incriminating and self-condemning thing to say, but it's how he felt. And so he said it. Luther, you may want to know, um, didn't have a lot of filters at times. The reason he felt what he felt and said what he said is because he believed that a righteous God who demanded a level of righteousness that no human being could ever accomplish and then condemned to hell human beings for not accomplishing it was a God he could not ever possibly love. It was later, as he kept doing his preaching and his teaching and the studying of scripture that preaching and teaching required, Luther came to realize that though, yes, it is most certainly true that the righteousness of God, unfiltered and unmasked, surely does and surely must condemn the unrighteous sinfulness of us. That nevertheless was not the whole truth. For what Luther found in the Bible, actually that's not quite right, whom Luther found in the Bible was Jesus. Whom he had come to understand from the church of his time was just one more of these condemners of sinners, but who now about came to realize by reading the Bible, which, by the way, was not a common thing to do in those days, even amongst priests and pastors and monks. Luther, reading the Bible, now came to see the rest of the Bible story, which is that Jesus didn't come to earth as the condemner of unrighteous sinners. Jesus, perfect in righteousness, that was the righteousness of God, came to earth as the savior of sinners. Hearing that and realizing at last, Luther recalled and now heard as if for the first time, the book of Romans chapter one and its words that a righteous God cannot but demand a righteousness, but the righteousness that a righteous God demands is not something we will ever achieve by our own efforts. It cannot be done. And to try, as Luther had discovered, was a fool's game. For to try, he ended up not closer to God, he ended up hating God. But Luther discovered in the course of his study that this God who, of course, hated sin, Luther discovered in reading his Bible, didn't hate sinners. Luther rather discovered that, that Jesus was sent for sinners, not to demand a level of righteousness for them to achieve, but rather to offer righteousness that only he could achieve and to offer it as a gift, to be received not by hard work, but by faith, by only faith, faith in Jesus. Of that Bible discovery, of the righteousness which is not a demand, but a gift to us, Luther later wrote, I felt that I was altogether born again and have entered paradise itself through the gates that have now been flung wide open. 
That Bible study discovery not only birthed in Luther a new and joyful and God-loving faith, that Bible study discovery also birthed the Reformation in the church. Because Luther, with newfound boldness rooted in the bold promises of Scripture for sinners, insisted and his whole life long never stopped insisting and Luther could be just a little bit um, strong-willed when it came to insisting that the church should be boldly doing something that it had somewhere along the line stopped doing and that is to preach to sinners that perfect righteousness comes to sinners not as a demand but as a gift a gift made known for sinners in Christ Jesus who reached not to condemn sinners, but reached rather on a cross to be condemned, to die, and to rise again for sinners, that through faith we might know that the greatest thing of all about God's great godness, the greatest thing of all is finally not the smoke and fire of God's righteous righteousness. The greatest thing of all of God's great godness is the depth and passion of God's forgiving love. The church in Luther's time, preferring the power of fear over love, preferring the motivation of guilt rather than grace, preferring the status of being served rather than being servants, preferring to tell people what they needed to do by, in order to get what was theirs rather than telling people what was theirs as a free of charge gift but because of all that Jesus did for them the church in Luther's time at least at the time chose not to be a part of the Reformation movement but rather to condemn it and to condemn Luther what about you? are you part of the Reformation movement? I should tell you that one doesn't answer that question by saying yes or no to that question. Rather, one answers that question, I think, by answering another question. There are many, 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 oh my gosh, so wonderful and beautiful things about you. But you, nevertheless, whether you want me to tell you this or not, whether you believe me or not, you're a sinner. You're not perfect. And God is. And that's just the way it is. And if that's all you've got, that probably can't not be frightening. Here's what Luther discovered. That's not all you've got. And you don't need to be afraid. You don't ever need to be afraid. In your darkest moments, you don't need to be afraid. In your unfectumest unfectum, I do not think that that is an entire phrase I can say again. In your unfectumest unfectum, you don't need to be afraid. At the moment of your death, you don't need to be afraid. For you, dear sinner, sister, or brother of mine, also have a brother named Jesus. And through him, by God, and by God, I mean not a grandpa or a teddy bear, I mean by God, 
through Christ, by God, you are forgiven all your sins. And you are loved by love which will not ever let you go in this life or the next. And it's all a gift. It is a free of charge gift. Do you know, do you believe that that free of charge gift is a free of charge gift for you? If yes, then you, even 500 years later, are the Reformation. For you, in a world whose religions and institutions and powers still often do operate by guilting and shaming and belittling, you, not by your power, but by the power of God's love, which is yours, you are a new creation. Or as Romans 1 does say, in a verse which birthed the Reformation and became the rallying cry of the Reformation, the righteous do not live hoping to appease an angry God with their personal righteousness. The righteous live rather by faith in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, given as a gift, not to the perfect or the righteous, but to sinners. Sinners whom God loves including the sinner whose name was Martin Luther, including the sinner whose name was fill-in-the-blank, your name. The righteous, righteous, righteousness of God, it is a gift, a free gift, through Christ, for you. Amen.